This project is built on a hypothesis. There are moments in history when the status quo fails. Political systems prove insufficient, religious ideas unsatisfactory, social structures intolerable. These are moments of crisis. During some of these moments, great minds have entered into conversation and torn apart inherited ideas. Dethroning truths, combining old thoughts, and creating new ideas, they've shaped the norms of future generations. Every era has its issues, but do ours warrant the conversation? If they do, is it happening? We'll be exploring these sorts of questions through conversations with a cross-section of American thinkers, people who are critiquing some aspect of normality and offering an alternative vision of the future, people who might be having the conversation. Like a real conversation, this project is going to be subjective. It will frequently change directions, connect unexpected ideas, and wander between the tangible and the abstract. It will leave us with far more questions than answers because, after all, nobody has a monopoly on dreaming about the future. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Mike Asall. And you're listening to The Conversation. This episode is Mary Mattingly, which you probably saw from the title already, but now it's official. And she is an artist out of New York City. Yes, she does a lot of work related to the environment, sustainability, urban design, human mobility, and our interactions with those things. Right. She's not solely focused on the environment. She's, she's focused on humans in the environment. We tracked her down because of a uh, project called the Flockhouse Project, which we're going to talk more about in a moment here. But while we kind of talk about that in the interview, I want to give a little backstory and also mention that before she worked on the Flockhouse, she worked on something called the Water Pod, which was a kind of sustainable floating barge that was wandering around the New York City area and, you know, it was growing its own food and had lots of internal processes on it. Yacht actually played a concert on the Water Pod, but uh, Mary mentioned that that kind of floating around and seeing all of these interesting industrial landscapes from the water pod inspired her to undertake the Flockhouse project where she was thinking out, well, how could we put little dwellings in all of these spaces that I'm seeing from my floating barge? And so there's kind of a direct lineage from one idea to the next. So I just wanted to throw that out there because we're not going to get into the water pod in the actual edited uh, conversation here. So a Flockhouse is... It's a structure that's basically designed through crowdsourcing um, different ideas from different architects and engineers and people skilled in building code in New York City, and then also artists and people who had have different ideas about building materials that could fit into that code. So essentially, it's trying to look at the code, simplify it, and make something that not meets it but beats it, sort of, so you can get around getting um, building permits, but you can still build a legal structure that is, in a way, self-sufficient and can move so you can place it in areas that are underused or that, you know, you need to be in. So Flock House started as a data visualization, actually, of migration patterns of people um, right now. So current, just sourcing current data about where people are moving um, and then making kind of a globular shape or, you know, if you can imagine the globe and then these rings around the globe and that's kind of how the shape came to be this round um, object with these rings and then over that there's a geodesic dome essentially because it's a really easy way to make walls 
So there's underneath the geodesic dome, there are all these rings that are, in this case, in, for New York, they're built out of plywood because there's so much around. So just smoothing the plywood into these round shapes and then making that visualization fit into something that's architectural and sturdy. That's kind of what the structure is itself. Okay, so it's like it's like a little single-person housing pod? It could be more for more than one person, but it's about 10 feet in diameter, so it could be from one to three, I'd say, pretty tightly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a housing pod. It collects rainwater, um, grows a little bit of food underneath, and some barrels that fit underneath these ladders that kind of hold the structure together. So instead of doing any welding or anything, you just use something that's pre-made that you can find. And then solar panels provide most of the power. There's also, in some cases, there are bike generators and lever generators for power. And so you were looking at data visualization about migration patterns around the world. And here we have the sustainable, very small, portable house. What's the connection between the two? Essentially movement. So I was really thinking about, you know, while people are moving right now, I see that as kind of the future as well. So more and more people are going to have to move for environmental, political, or economic reasons, um, or want to move. So what could be a short-term solution or what could be something that made sense for a longer term that was better built than a lot of things that you might see built from scrap? So how could we make, make this fit the code of your city, but also be built from scrap? So it's a little bit safer in a way, you could say. And it also has the ability to come apart and then be put back together. I think if you think about doing projects because you see a social need for them, it really has to be your own as well. So I really relate it to my own need to always find somewhere to live. <laughs> to be able to be in a position where I feel like I can provide for myself. And for me, that means you know having these systems that are off-grid, so you're not really dependent on this supply chain for your needs. What is sort of the social system that the flock house is addressing in a way? I mean, for someone who would be living in that, like why is this better than what we have now? Well, I guess as far as thinking about the future, I was trying to understand a time where we would be able to provide for ourselves outside of a supply chain, um, but also not be completely self-sufficient or alone or isolated, which I felt like other projects in the past I've done have kind of alluded to. And in this way, thinking about a future where we're working together as a close-knit community. So in the flock house, you don't have everything you need supplied for you. You don't have enough water. And same with food. It's also minimal on food. So you have to be in the situation where you can exchange with your neighbors. And I imagine this barter system. Or So part of the project was actually like setting these things up in public spaces where we could work through a barter wherever they were set up. So for example, the first one was set up in Battery Park and the artist who lived in that flock house bartered with the urban farm right next door for, for additional food in exchange for photographing their school groups, I think. So things like that happened all the time throughout the project where we would try to initiate these barters beforehand and then illustrate them as the project played out over the summer, which was kind of just a test mm -hmm. this summer. What issues were you trying to raise? I wanted people to to question it and to inquire as to what it was. If um, I think it's pretty unclear when you walk up to it exactly what it is. It looks like, in a way, a big golf ball or something, depending on where it was and, 
how it looked at the time, I think people could be pretty confused or curious about it. So I think I wanted people to engage with the person living in there and hear about their experience and then tell them a little bit about what's inside and what they're doing in there. So people usually planned a project while they were inside of the flock house, so they worked on that. So that was a good segue into talking about the flock house. You know, you mentioned that you were designing them because of your own pressing needs for thinking about houses and space, but also the environmental aspect. Why create these sustainable dwellings? Um, I guess because if everybody had the ability to produce some of what they needed, then there would be less strain on, on large supply chains and less strain on neighbors if nobody had anything, for instance. So so it's sort of thinking about that model of spreading, decentralizing, I guess. And why is decentralizing good? Well, I think we lose the risk of that comes with centralizing, where everything is in one area, and then if that area falls apart, then you have nothing, right? So if you have all of your growing space in one area of upstate New York and then something happens to it, then you have no food. And in this case, you have... You can imagine, like, my garden fails, but yours didn't, so let's work together. Like, maybe there's something I can do for you. So it was kind of thinking about just smaller models of living with people and reconnecting as a community. Yeah. It seems like there's an assumption of a different type of value, and I think anything that is interested in community seems to be interested in community as a value. Yeah. Is that fair? Yeah, I I think that's very fair. I guess moving here in 2001, right before September 11th, made me feel like I finally had a community and understood what community could be. Um, Before that, I was moving around a lot and I was doing projects that were imagining a future um, encapsulated in a a small bubble where you were kind of protecting yourself from other people. And it was really a dystopic vision of what was going to happen due to technologies and I guess I should say communication technologies and people not visiting face-to-face, for instance, or... Hmm. Um, and in 2001, you were thinking about that before sort of the blow-up of a really big social media? Yeah, I, I guess I was just seeing it happen then, and maybe it was because I was here as well, and seeing those parallels between what could happen when people pulled together and helped each other, um, and then also the other side of that, like where technology is really extreme and what that's doing to people, say, in, in the office I was working in or something like that. So I think Flockhouse, you know, is trying to embrace what I think community could be and what it is in, in different spaces and what there could be more of, right, or I'd like to see more of, maybe about the different possibilities for looking backwards at some examples of agrarian systems were and how they could be adopted for the present or the future and also looking forwards and thinking about what mobile cities could look like or something or a different design for an urban space could look like. We talked about security as being one of the things that can come from a local community, less dependent on a big centralized Mm -hmm. system. I think a lot of people like that idea. Are there other values to being in community? Yeah, I guess the nearness to people who can work with you or you know who you can work with what do you think are there I mean community is a theme that I'm fascinated with obviously I think it has a lot of value here's another big theme that's been coming up on the project ideas of progress and Mm. this is one of the things that links the technology conversation with the community conversation with a lot of other conversations 
and I was talking to um, Alexa Clay about this as well the other day, how do we choose to measure progress? I can think of a stronger sense of community as being a good that in a way is a kind of social progress, even if it's not necessarily measurable. Okay, yeah. Um, the What really attracts me about the idea of progress is thinking about what happens when people put their ideas together who would never meet. So, um, so like we're talking about communities here and in the community, I'm imagining these communities as very as more local, but also um, with enough technologies to be global and have a broader base of knowledge, right? And I think that's really exciting, you know, what people do do together as opposed to alone. So I think, you know, when I'm imagining a progressive future, it definitely has to do with people working together and coming up with new ideas that aren't necessarily economic or I don't know what they are, but I, I think they're just ideas that are experienced through multiple minds that are varied from, you know, the individual. And I think what's exciting right now is that we're, from an artist's perspective, we're far away from modernism where, where we're individuals creating perfect things, right? And we're also kind of moving away from postmodernism where, where the opposite of that is happening and we're kind of working together. And I think that's really exciting and you know you never know what's going to happen that makes me want to get into a question which sort of ties that into the flock house again you know the flock house if we can talk about it as the embodiment of a certain idea of a future that involves community and mobility and sustainability to some extent and resilience maybe if those are kind of the the ideas of good embodied in that as a, as a thing are we going in that direction? I don't think they're really the ideas of good, but I think they're maybe the ideas of necessity. Ooh. Um, okay, let's let's break that apart. That's interesting. Yeah. So, so the ability to move could be a necessity, right? All the aspects that you just described of the flockhouse can just really point to the necessity of surviving in a future that's really to be determined, of course, but also controlled by large players. I wonder what's going to happen with housing. I wonder what's going to happen with more and more people moving to cities everywhere because of globalization and jobs moving to cities. I also think that the future could be a place where people constantly need to move because of the havoc that we've wrecked on the environment. So for instance, as you think that the middle of some country is fine, but it slowly becomes desertified where the rest of it floods or something like that. I mean, I think that's pretty much the future I see is that one of more and more ecological and environmental problems and people trying to survive in them and maybe some people knowing how or having the resources to, but most people not having those resources to. I, I do agree that we have infinite creativity as humans and we can always kind of create new materials that will do different things and we can use our garbage and we can create a new plastic from that or something else, something like that. And we can always make, for instance, building materials. I don't know how easily we can always make everything, but maybe it, I guess it is possible. And why not live in, in a world that's sort of like Dune or <laughs> inside of a, a geodesic dome um, that provides you fresh air? I mean, it's interesting and scary to think about an Earth that could be completely controlled by humans, but it seems like it's definitely possible. I could find fun thinking about like living under the sea or all the places that humans really haven't been able to sustain themselves in very well. Like if we could really 
get control of that. I mean, it's it's definitely like a dark future, but I think something that I could embrace if we did go there. So the good then is is almost survival. Maybe. For people without power. Maybe it's uh, giving people some kind of power to not be trapped. <laughs> right. I mean, if, if we were to spin that out, and I don't want to put words into your mouth, but it seems like there's an egalitarianism in that, in a sense that like, look, this isn't like a level playing field. People need a chance you know, to live in ways that are somewhat under their control. Exactly. No, I think that's very a very good point. And I think that's also why in the beginning of the project, we were looking at building code to see how we could get around it. Because you don't want to be called illegal, right? Like, you don't want your place to get shut down when you're in it. So you want it to be functional and you want to be subverting those rules or getting around those rules. So yeah, there has to be this understanding of the rules that exist and then how you can playfully break them and get away with breaking them. And that, in a way, gives you a freedom or a power. Do you worry about some sort of collapse? That's been a theme that some thinkers push pretty hard and other ones just laugh off. Yeah, I don't think so. I mean, I don't, I don't, I think that um, there are enough different potentials and people doing so many different things that a central collapse isn't going to collapse everything. Like a central collapse will affect some people more than others, right? And I don't think people would be helpless. I don't think we need to collapse, I guess is my point, if we were sort of prepared. <laughs> I mean, I guess that's the flockhouse again. Right, right. And so that's, I think, a nice place to sort of go. What does that better solution look like so you avoid the collapse? Yeah, and, and it's like making things probably is a place to start to avoid that collapse. Like if we all knew how to make things better or more things, then we would be less vulnerable to some sort of central collapse. I'd be interested to know like what you found out as far as making goes versus using. That's a theme that I don't think has been in this project enough now that you bring it up. Also, it's interesting to think of it as political because of the way that we're framing it here. It almost, it, making something becomes really political or, or right. you're not using it but you're creating it and you're sort of getting around those power structures, maybe. Is that your vision of, of a better future? It's, yeah. <laughs> it is that kind of, I mean, it's like it's a really nuts and bolts sort of like creative, resilient. Yeah, I kind of, I kind of see us for sure needing to survive something like that and, and having the ability to do so if, if we're thinking about it beforehand. So if we're kind of preemptive as opposed to reactionary, then then I think the future could be one of barter and sharing or, you know, of smaller economic systems and smaller systems all around that I like the idea of them being connected globally in some way. I'm thinking of an economist I talked to on Bainbridge Island in Washington named David Corton, and he's really interested in local, but he's also interested in local plus, you know, he takes it further and he's interested in like, how do you have these local communities that are environmentally sustainable, but you still get to keep the tech, right? And then other thinkers, like a primitivist I spoke to, John Zerzan, are like, you can't. You just can't that's have That's really both. fascinating. And that's been a big tension in this project, especially for thinkers on the left who are really interested in the local, but don't like to say, we may have to back off. I mean, how much centralization do you need to have this recording device here? Can you have a real sustainable local culture with that level of technology? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would have to agree that you really can't. I mean, it seems like 
here, let me just backtrack for a second. Yeah, totally. We were, I went to a university recently and heard a graduate student give his thesis paper. His subject was the laptop, and he focused on like how his laptop was made and if it had caused any deaths in the making of it, and was that his responsibility? And it was an interesting thesis topic, but mm -hmm. it also made me think, wow, this is really becoming mainstream, like these ideas that, yeah, you're responsible for what you own. And I think when more and more people grasp that, it won't make sense to kind of live with those things the way that we have been, especially in a very disposable way that we have been. Which is interesting to think like, if you believe that sustainability is important and that part of that is reining in consumption and being more efficient with using things and maybe actually saying goodbye to technology, which I think is the hardest thing, how do you sell it to a country that hasn't gotten the middle class lifestyle yet? I think there must be a way to, I guess, you can think of maybe the U.S. or places like the U.S. as test zones for things that have not worked out. So if you avoid the things that haven't worked out and then you go to the better things, then it seems like there could be a middle ground where you have some technology and it allows you to do many things like cell phone, for example, you know, getting around a landline in mm -hmm. Africa or something like that. Um, it seems like there's a, a minimal amount of technology that's probably good for a society today because we're already global. So in order to understand what's going on in the rest of the world, for example, and to, I mean, there's a perspective or a point of view that we have right now that's really helpful to people. And it's something like that laptop, right? Like that kid would never really understand where his laptop came from had he not had access. To the laptop. Yeah, to the laptop, exactly. So, yeah. So had he had access to his genes or whatever, you know, he would he still wouldn't know that story. But there's something about the technology that allowed him to know right. what was happening. A lot of people associate technology with progress or technology with something that you're not necessarily entitled to, but you should have a shot at. Mm -hmm. Do you think we can sort of have the cultural transition, I almost said maturity, to be able to say, well, we're not going to have it all? I think small groups of people could. Overall, I, I don't see people able to do that. I asked that because I was thinking of another another guy I spoke to named Joseph Tainter, who's written this book on the collapse of complex civilizations. You know, he painted a very bleak picture. He really framed it as something you can't get out of. And so when I was asking him about that, he said, I really think the only thing that's going to make any difference is the price mechanism. Hmm. You just have to clobber people so hard financially that they change their behavior. He's like, you can't persuade anyone that they will have right. a more minimalistic. I mean, maybe you can with a couple people, but you can't say, go live in a flock house, say goodbye to your computer, enjoy yeah. a conversation with your neighbors. You basically have to say, no, you can't afford power. You know, so and there's there's a model where conversation really doesn't matter. We're much more mechanical. The agency is taken away in those stories. Yeah, but I guess they're, it seems like they're very real and unavoidable, right? It's like Bolivia with water privatization. It's an immediate need, so your survival instinct sort of kicks in, and you realize that a conversation isn't going to be fast enough, maybe. So maybe it has to do with speed, too. So maybe those are the ones where conversation matters less because like they're so immediate and visceral things blow up if they're not provided yeah and then maybe it's the other stuff how does the government distribute wealth you know if it's doing like a somewhat decent job maybe that's approached more through conversation but maybe it still has to do with those basic needs right 
And maybe instead of hopefully we have a job for those things, maybe we can get to a point where we can provide those things for ourselves without working for them. Because I think then we're still in this scary position of being dependent for those basic human needs that, yeah, can cause things like big riots or, or mass destruction when they could have maybe been avoided if people were able to be more self-sufficient in a way. So, Does that mean you're an optimist about the future? Yeah, I mean, I think I'm optimistic that we'll survive, that we can survive. I, I, <laughs> so <laughs> That's kind of a guarded <laughs> optimism, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm not really optimistic about what I think the future will be like. I think it'll just be harder for more people. But I do think that like that there's a way to alleviate that. And I'm optimistic that like people will be able to do that and hopefully be more in control of at least themselves. I'm thinking Mad Max and Beyond Thunderdome. And, and somehow this conversation has me in that mental space. Beyond Waterpod, Beyond Flockhouse. There is such a, an interesting post-apocalyptic thread through this whole conversation, which pokes its head out every once in a while, but it doesn't... It was really surprising to me to finish listening to it and realize that it was there the whole time. But yeah, no, this is a this is a really interesting future that she's painting. It's decentralized and it's highly mobile. It's people running, it seems like, doesn't it? Yeah, it really does feel like that. And it doesn't feel like the community is picked up and relocated because of a storm. It feels like the storm hits and everyone's running. Right. And they're running as individuals and they reform, you know. I mean, I think that's where the flockhouse is such a good it's kind of a metaphor for her vision of the future, you know, something that gets hit by a wave and splits into a billion pieces and then reforms again elsewhere. Right. And it's kind of a scary future. <laughs> and yet we've got another one of these optimists, another one of these guarded optimists. Mm-hmm. And that sense of optimism carries through the whole thing as well. Even when she's talking about you know, potentially incredibly dark futures, she, she says she's willing to embrace those dark futures. And what a line that was. I mean, you can guess why I chose to include that in the edit, because no one else has talked about that or said anything remotely like embracing a dark future. No, exactly. And then what's really interesting is is that there's sort of two poles in this project, right, around the sort of future she's talking about. On one hand, you've got people that would not view it as that dark, just view it as change and view it as we're going to make it through that and it's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think of Zubrin or Cannon or Miller yeah, or... exactly. Who knows? Maybe even Tim Morton. I don't know. That's an interesting question. We could record an hour-long conversation about that. Yeah, yes, we could. So let's not. <laughs> so there are people who can see that future as not being dark, who would reject its darkness. But then there are other ones, then, right? right? Then on the flip side, you've got your Jan Lundbergs, you've got your Wes Jacksons, you've got your certainly your John Zerzans who view that as, oh my God, that is horrible, and you have to do everything you can to stop that. And then here's here's Mary Mattingly, who says, wow, that's pretty horrible. But, you know, I think we can do that. Like, how does she walk between those two different minefields? It seems like some of it is the sense that Even as the world gets harder, even as we become strapped for resources, even as we are in a world in which we have to run and break apart and reform, the essential things that make life worthwhile or good 
they're still there for her, right? The human element, the connectivity, mm-hmm. that's there. And if facing it correctly, the personal agency is still there. The self-empowerment can still be there. That opens up something else that I think is really interesting in this. One of the things that I like about Mary is that she is very hard to put into any sort of ideological camp or category. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about agency, you just got me thinking about, you know, the Flockhouse is such, it's so atomized and it's also so communal. And her thought seems the same way. I agree. I I think uh, one of the most interesting things in this conversation for me was the fine line she walks between all of these different seemingly conflicting themes we've had throughout the project. Is she community-based? Is she individual-based? Is she central versus local? I mean, it seems like the trajectory of her thought over time has gone from highly concerned with individualism and agency and has gotten to a greater appreciation of sort of how individuals form into communities and then what is the community as something more than the sum of its parts. Right. Um, and it, I kind of feel like she takes us on that whole journey and we see where she is now in this conversation. And in some ways I got the feeling that's still a journey she's on. She's not quite sure entirely how to reconcile the more individualist, self-reliant side with the side that believes that there needs to be community. And maybe there is no reconciling and maybe it's better if there are always well actually we can get a little worm in connection here and i mean we can say here are forces in balance perhaps Mm -hmm. and maybe that's one of the things that made this conversation really fun it felt very non-dogmatic i totally agree it felt like a conversation it certainly didn't feel like a presentation but speaking about connections how about some of the other connections there's one with alexa yes talking about the fringes there are actually several interesting points of comparison, I think, between Alexa and Mary's conversations. I agree. The notion of misfits on the fringes of society was the one that struck me the most. Listening to Mary talk about the economies that she she envisions popping up around communities of flockhouses really made me think about the misfit economies that Alexa was talking about. It made me think that, you know, in some ways Alexa believes that we can all learn from the fringes of society. Mm -hmm. I kind of got the feeling that Mary believes that most of us are already on the fringes of society, and so we can just learn from each other. And it it wasn't a learning from the fringes. It was just learning from each other because we're already on the fringes. Now that you mention that, there's a really interesting sort of point of reference thing. And it ties back into, I think, the beginning of Mary's conversation where she talks about a lot of the questions she asks with her work stems from her pressing needs, like, where do you live, right? Whereas for Alexa, maybe she faces a different set of questions in her day-to-day life, so she wouldn't perceive herself as on the fringe. Um, They also have a common solution, (laughs) which I kind of like. They talk about maker culture, which gets us back to Douglas Rushkoff and makes me think that, again... Here's a big theme that we really need to be talking about as we push the project forward. Yeah, I think you're right. Okay, well, let's close this thing out here. But before we go, let's talk a little bit about the good with the capitals, the good. We should have a sound effect that we play for this, but we're just not 
that high budget. But what is the good? We talked a little earlier, and I was mentioning that I felt that for her, a big source of value, you know, when she was embracing a dark future, it came from people. Mm -hmm. What more can we read into this? I mean, we're both humanities people. We can read anything into anything. I think there were a lot of things she was talking about as, as good in the lowercase g. And I think that one of the common threads there, so a candidate for the good capital G, is decentralization. Decentralization is, is good when you're talking about uh, supply chains. It's good when you're talking about your living environment. It's good when you're talking about knowledge. I mean, in some ways, isn't that what the maker culture is all about, is a decentralization of knowledge? Well, that certainly leads to agency. And I think I could say that decentralization was necessary. I could say that agency was good. And I mean, she leaves us on that point, giving people control over their own lives. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like creativity and choice, I mean, they've come up with Ariel Waldman and with a lot of other people before. Those seem like goods that you achieve through the necessity of decentralization. I would buy that. There's kind of a whitehead quality here, isn't there? Absolutely. I mean, you're thinking of that uh, that horrible, horrible word she used, aren't you? Glocal. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, that one. <laughs> I do love to say that. You just know how much it hurts me. The global local. The global. Yeah. And what's unfortunate is that that, that is a really gross-sounding word, but it's actually really useful, it, right? Yes. And I think Mary gets us to that point, too, with that laptop example. It's something that, on one hand, is creating this giant centralized system. You know, you need that to create the laptop. But the laptop is also the tool that you use to understand that system. And her question sort of like, if we have to say goodbye to some of the tech, how do we keep the tech that lets us be globally connected? And I think, again, there's sort of a question of good there. It puts you in a, in a broader conversation in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's the global conversation. It leads to the unexpected fusion of lots of different ideas. That seems like a good for her. Yeah. And what's interesting to me is how does that reconcile with her desire for small, hyper-decentralized local communities? Like, can you have both? So basically, do you end up at a point where what you need pits you against the good? Right. Ugh. Like, seriously, that's a fucking horrifying thought. The, the need... Or your needs get in the way of your values in a way that's just irreconcilable. That's a hard thing for us to accept because I think we've been wealthy for a long time and we don't like the idea of ever being so pushed to the wall where desperate necessity overcomes what you consider good. That really does feel like an apocalypse. That was Mary Mattingly, recorded in her studio in Brooklyn, New York, on November 3rd, 2012. This is The Conversation. You can find us on Twitter at, at Angus Anderson and on the web at findtheconversation.com. So, thanks for listening. I'm Angus Anderson. And I'm Micah Saul. <laughs>